Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Tonight we will be looking at Psalm 65 and Psalm 66. These two psalms are very similar to each other because they are both psalms of praise. And really, they are not complicated. They're quite poetic. But it also sort of answers the question, why do we praise God? Why do we worship God all too often, especially in the name-it-claim-it territory of supposed Christianity? They'll tell you that you praise God, you worship God when things are going good for you. When God blesses you, then you thank him and praise him. David is going to reach far beyond that and say that you should praise God for absolutely everything across the board because he is God, because he's in charge of everything, and therefore the entirety of the planet should praise him. The things that we refer to as natural processes, the change of season, the way things grow, David says that's all God. And so even the nations can see, the unbelieving nations can see the rain come. They can see day and night happen. The natural course of things and its consistency, David says, that's all God. That's God displaying himself, proving that he exists. Therefore, worship God. Psalm 65, he's even going to go so far as to say that the entire planet the way things work, and the very fact that God forgives is reason enough to praise him. In Psalm 66, then, he's going to say, in particular, that God has been good to Israel. Therefore, Israel needs to praise him, and he's going to finish Psalm 66 by recounting the fact that God has been good to him. Therefore, praise him. So if we just kind of follow David's outline in these two psalms, we ought to be praising God for all the big stuff, the stuff that is so far beyond our control that we can't begin to comprehend it, the stuff like the fact that wind exists, or that it's a sunny day, or that you woke up this morning and the sun, sure enough, was still in the sky. Those are the things that God is controlling, therefore praise him. God is a covenant-keeping God who also chooses people, as David is going to say, and then doesn't count their sin against them. Well, praise God for that. God is also the God who takes people through difficult periods, like what he's going to recount Israel going through. And yet, praise God as he takes them through that time of testing and trying and then refining them the way that a silversmith would refine silver. So praise God. And then he says, and he has done this for me. And he has listened to my prayer. 
and he has responded to me, so praise God. So really, there's nothing in this lifetime, big or small, intimate or in the macro, that you can look at and not find reason to praise God. Because it's all his, therefore, praise God. Now, Psalm 65 is also going to talk about a particular time of year that he says is like the highlight of their year, that is a time of harvest. And therefore, some commentators have said that Psalm 65 may have been written for the Feast of First Fruits as part of the celebration of First Fruits. So let's start by going back to the book of Leviticus. Keep your finger there in Psalm 65. Go back to the book of Leviticus 23 is the chapter we'll be looking at. And here are the basic rules about how to observe and praise God during the Feast of First Fruits. Psalm 23 is a recitation of the particular feasts that God says Israel needs to set aside. But starting in verse 9, we read, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give to you, and you reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted. And on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Then on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, one year old without defect, for a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering by fire to the Lord for a soothing aroma, with its libation a fourth of a hin of wine. Until this same day, until you have brought in the offering of your God, you shall eat neither bread nor roasted grain nor new growth, It is to be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. And so that might be what David has in mind. When you hear the language and you hear him saying that God has prepared the earth in order for there to be a harvest. It's God who sends the rain. It's God who has abundant streams and furrows so that grain will grow so that his people can eat. He's giving God credit for doing all of that, but he also makes reference to the fact in verse 11, you've crowned the year with your bounty. And so the crown of the year with a bountiful harvest would be the Feast of First Fruits. So that's why people make that connection. So Psalm 65, starting at verse 1, there will be silence before thee, And praise in Zion, O God. The word silence there means there's going to be an end of debate. There's going to be an end of argument. There's going to be an end of people saying there is no God. People are going to be driven to worship God. So there's going to be a silence before God, a cessation of the argument against God. And in its place, there's going to be praise to God. That praise is going to come from Zion, from Jerusalem, 
from the place where God has chosen to place his name. There will be silence before thee and praise in Zion, O God. To thee the vow will be performed. In Psalm 65 and Psalm 66, he mentions the vow. The vow shows up a lot in the Old Testament, and basically what it was was like a votive offering. It wasn't one of the required offerings. It was something you could do for God. Usually a vow was made when you were in trouble, when you were sick, when you were in trouble against enemies. Then you would promise God a certain thing. When you deliver me, I will do this. And the tendency of human beings is to go and make promises to God. And then later on, when things go good again, they just forget about it. They just go on about their lives. And that happens even today. Uh, Jesus himself said, when talking about faithfulness to God, he repeats it. Pay your vows. If you've made promises to God, keep your vows. Because it is, after all, God that you've made the promise to. And so he says that there's going to be praise in Zion to God and to thee, the vow, the vote of offering, the payment of promise will be performed, which is a form of worship and praise to God. I will recognize that you are God. You're the God that delivered me out of my troubles. And when I made a promise to you, I'm going to honor you by keeping that promise. Okay, so here's another reason to praise him. O thou who does hear prayer, to thee all men come. God listens to prayer, and ultimately, if you want another reason to praise God, it's that he hears your prayer. Iniquities prevail against me. That's real interesting language. David is a king who understands warfare, and he uses warfare language at this point, and he says that iniquity, that sinful desire, that fleshly desire, rises up against him and does battle against him. And I think we all can relate to that. We all desire to be better than we are, but our iniquities fight against us, do battle with us, and all too often overcome us. So David admits, iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, thou dost forgive them even though you are constantly victim to the onslaught of your own transgressions. He is the one who, kafar is the Hebrew word. It means covered. He covered your sin. If that's not reason enough to praise him, then I just, I have to slap you. I don't know what else to do. If that's not reason enough to praise him, then you don't understand the God of this Bible. What an incredible contrast. I'm weak. I am incapable of helping myself. Therefore, my iniquities do battle against me, and all too often they win. So the solution, as you've heard me say so many times, the solution can't be you. And therefore, David says, but as for our transgressions, as for the fact that our iniquities win so very often, Okay, I keep qualifying that. Okay, all the time. Our iniquities just keep winning. 
So the solution is not us. The solution is God. He's the one who forgives our transgressions. Praise him. These are all good reasons to go praise God. He forgives iniquity. Here's a good reason to praise him. Verse 4. How blessed is the one whom thou dost choose and bring near to thee. Oh, there's a great blessing. If you know anything about God, it's because he's the one that chose you and brought you to himself. Now, I will add that the phrase, the one whom you choose, isn't in the Hebrew per se, so it might be the people that you choose, because in a moment, David is going to pluralize it. He's talking about the nation of Israel and how God chose the nation of Israel from all the other people of the earth and how God drew them to himself. So how blessed is the people whom thou dost choose and bring near to thee to dwell in thy courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. People are chosen to come to the temple, to come to his courts, to worship him. We that are satisfied with the goodness that flows from the house of God and the only reason that we have those blessings from God, from his temple, are because he chose us. So whether he's choosing people, whether he's choosing an individual, that's another reason to praise him because he's the God who chooses people draws people, and then blesses and satisfies those people. We will be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, thy holy temple. By awesome deeds, you do answer us in righteousness, O God of our salvation. I think, again, the us there is talking about Israel and the history of Israel. As you're going to see as we continue on here, he's going to recite the fact that God took Israel into Egypt, took them through slavery, and yet delivered them and brought them to this land of milk and honey. So therefore, the awesome deeds that God has done to deliver his people is yet another reason to praise him because he saves his people, he delivers his people. And he does it sometimes miraculously, by awesome deeds. Thou dost answer us in your righteousness, O God of our salvation. Thou who art the trust of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest sea. In other words, David is saying, doesn't matter how far you go, to the furthest sea, to the ends of the earth, to the end of the known inhabited planet, no matter how far you go, there is no other God like you. There is no other God who shows himself, who demonstrates himself the way you do. Yes, people may bow down to idols. Yes, people may raise up their pantheons and mythologies of gods. But none of those gods have evidence. But you, God, you are the only God all the way to the ends of the earth because you're the only one who does things like this, who demonstrates himself, who proves himself by his awesome deeds and his choosing of people and his forgiving of their sins. Verse 6, who dost establish the mountains by his strength, being clothed, being girded with might. So, okay, now David's saying, you walk outside and you see the landscape and you see the mountains 
and you see the power it took to create the earth you're on. You didn't do that, and yet it got done. So God gets the credit for the doing of it again. Praise God. Praise him for the fact that he establishes the mountains by his almighty power because he is girded. That, again, is that warfare language. He is wrapped about, prepared for battle, and he is girded with his own might, his own strength. Who doth still the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples. David is comparing the roaring waves of the upset sea with the roaring waves of upset people. We see a lot of that these days. We see upset people and yelling people and rioting people and discontented people who are never happy. Here David says, God's going to handle that because he also handles the roaring seas. Then Jesus walks on the planet, and in the storm and in the roiling seas, he's downstairs in the boat sleeping. And when his apostles come to him and say, don't you care that we're going to perish? He walks up on the deck of the ship and says, peace, be still. And it lays down like a puppy at his feet. When he did that, that was not just an arbitrary moment of him showing some power or authority. He was satisfying this description of God, that God is in charge not only of people, but of waves and of storms. So he was showing that he was God, but he was also showing that the scripture, which described God as being in charge of the storms, was being fulfilled in the very fact that he was on the planet, because he is the God who's in charge of the seas and the roaring storms. And by virtue of the fact that he proved he has that kind of power, David could also say, and therefore, he's in control of people, the tumult of people, the arguments and anger and unhappiness of people. He's going to care for that, too. He's going to judge that. He's going to settle that. Or are you going to do it? Obviously, you're not going to do it. He proved that he can do it. And so David gives us yet another reason to praise him. This is why he is the trust of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest sea, because he establishes the mountains in his strength. He's girded about with his might, and he stills the roaring of the seas the roaring of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples. And they who dwell in the very ends of the earth stand in awe of your signs. Now, when David says that the ends of the earth are going to stand in awe of your signs, you expect something like, wow, you mean some big miraculous thing that everybody on the whole planet's going to see? One day there is going to be something like that. The skies are going to go dark, and as the lightning shines from the east to the west, the sign of the Son of Man is going to appear in the heavens. That's going to be an awesome moment of God demonstrating his power. But when David says, the whole ends of the earth are going to stand in awe because of your signs, he's now going to list some of those signs, and those signs are the things that we've become so accustomed to, we don't even recognize them anymore as God showing the power of God. Because we're used to day and night. We're used to sun and moon. 
And David says, that's the power of God doing that. The ends of the earth stand in awe of your signs. You do make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. Okay, so it's not just dawn and sunset. But David said the very fact that those happen day by day by day is praise to God. The very fact that those occur is a demonstration of God's power. And the very fact that they keep happening is all praise to God. So the things that we consider nature are all God demonstrating his own power. You make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. And you visit the earth and you cause it to overflow. Now he's going to get into this harvest language. I've mentioned this many, many times. We're spoiled here in the 21st century because if we get a little hungry, we just go get some food. But job one, 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, every single day, was find food. And if you couldn't find food, you starved to death. So David, being well aware of that, is going to say, the very fact that the earth continues to produce food is a demonstration of God's power and his faithfulness in the way he has made the earth and in the way that he continues to take care of the earth by the very fact that the ground remains fertile and that rain keeps coming and things grow and therefore people are satisfied with the food they eat and they don't even think to say, Wow, God did a lot of miraculous stuff just for me to be able to have some bread. So David, again, is giving us reasons to worship God, to praise God. You do visit the earth, and you cause it to overflow or to be abundant. You greatly enrich it. The stream of God is full of water, because if you just have earth and you don't water it, seeds don't grow. So he's just gotten done saying that the earth itself, the ground itself has been enriched so that it has nutrients for the things that grow, and then it needs water, but the stream of God is full of water, and you prepare the grain, for thus thou dost prepare the earth. So what do you need to grow grain? You need seed, you need dirt, you need water. And David just said, God provides all three of those. So next time you eat something, remember to praise God, to thank God, to worship God for it, because were it not for his provision, were it not for his abundant water, if it were not for his putting nutrients in the ground, if it wasn't for him preparing the grain, nothing grows. So David is giving credit to God Again, for the things that we just take for granted. We don't even see the miraculous in it anymore. Yet David says, these are signs. These are God demonstrating himself. Therefore, praise him. You prepare the grain, for thou dost prepare the earth. And then you water its furrows abundantly. You know, we whine every once in a while when it's raining. It's going to be raining for the next couple of days here, apparently. And we think, oh, that's going to stop us from some of the activities we want to do, rather than recognizing that this is a blessing from God. He's sending water to the planet, and he's watering the furrows abundantly. 
and then he's, he's smoothing out the ridges of the ground. You do settle its ridges, and you do soften it with your showers. The ground, as it gets muddy, gets softer, becomes easier to plant. So David is just looking at the process of rain coming down and how it is affecting the dirt, and he's observing that and saying, that's all God. And we need to praise him for the fact that he's doing it. You water its furrows abundantly, and you settle its ridges. Thou dost soften it with showers, and you do bless its growth. So a minute ago, I said, you need seed, you need water, you need land. But then you also need the seed to actually grow and continue to grow until it bears fruit. David gives God credit for that. Because he made the seed in such a way that if it has nutrients and water, it will produce food. Do you do that? Obviously not. He says, God does all that, but you, you know, you'll just eat. <laughs> you'll just put food in your mouth without thinking about the entire process that God has put in place in order for food to grow so that you can eat. So praise God for eating. Praise God for food. And then here's where David relates all of that. He's talking about the harvest of food, and now he relates it in verse 11 to the crowning of the year, the the chief day of the year. Thou hast crowned the year. It's the high day of the year with your bounty. So that's harvest language. And the day that we celebrate your harvest, that seems to be a reference to first fruits, as we just read. And your paths drip with fatness. In other words, we have plenty of food. By the way, the word paths there is actually technically the wheels of your cart. The wheels have made furrows in the ground and left paths. In other words, when a farmer is out in his field, and let's say he has a cart being pulled by oxen, you can tell where he's been because the wheels have left furrows in the ground. David says, the very fact that we see the bounty that you have provided for us, the harvest that we get every year at the same time of the year, that is like you, God, driving your cart through our land, and you have left yourself with tracks that we can watch. And we can say, God's been here. He's driven right through here. Your paths drip with fatness. The pastors of the wilderness. Okay, so so far he has described men who actually go out and create furrows and plant seed and plan on food. But then David goes beyond that and says, there's whole areas of the wilderness where God is creating food that animals are eating. You're not doing that. It's God who has made the planet in such a way that it continues to produce sustenance for his creatures. The pastures of the wilderness also drip. A moment ago, he said, your paths drip with fatness. And so he's saying the same thing. Your pastures are full of bounty, full of food. The pastures in the wilderness drip. And the hills themselves dress themselves, gird themselves with rejoicing. So the very fact that animals have food to eat on the hills is a typification of the planet itself worshiping, praising God. 
The hills gird themselves with rejoicing. The meadows, the open fields, the open plains are clothed with flocks of animals. And the valleys are covered with grain. So they shout for joy. Yes, they sing. Okay, so based on all that, I mean, David is giving you ample reason to praise God. And the more you look at the way that the natural order exists and the more you recognize that God made it that way, created that way, even down to the little details, the more reason you have to praise God. Because after all, David has said, the whole of creation, the hills, the plains, the trees, the wind, the day, the night, everything in creation is praising God because God is its maker. So then we ought to be praising God. And instead, it's so easy for us to take it all for granted and forget to stop and look at it and recognize God in all of it. And that takes us to Psalm 66. Now, Psalm 66 also says for the choir director, a song, a psalm, It does not say a psalm of David, and yet the language is so close to what we just read in Psalm 65. It's hard to imagine that anybody else wrote it. Shout joyfully to God, all the earth. Same idea. Notice, by the way, that it says, shout joyfully to God. We we don't do a lot of that. We're not really shouting people. We're just kind of quiet, nodding people. When we hear something that we agree with, we do that. We, just, we nod. And yet, shout joyfully to God, all the earth, and sing the glory of his name. So make his praise glorious. So how do you make the praise of God glorious? This is all about the praise of God. How do you make it glorious? Well, you go ahead and invest in it. You sing it. You shout it. You declare it. You don't just get quiet about it. You don't observe it and then sit back and go, yeah, that works. Instead, you worship God with your body, with your tongue, with your voice. Make joyful noise unto the Lord. Shout joyfully to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are thy works. Well, you're not going to say that unless you recognize it. And you're going to recognize it by stopping and looking, by stopping and recognizing that all the things that happen on this planet, the things that are so beneficial to us, like regular food or morning and evening, or the things that we call the natural processes, are all the things of God. Therefore, we should say to God, this is part of praising God. This is part of what it is to bless the Lord, is to say to him that you recognize his many blessings and how he provides for you. How awesome are thy works. I like that word awesome. I think in the modern day of advertising, we've lost the sense of what awesome is. It means full of awe, full of wonder. It's astounding. So say to God, how astounding are your works. And they really are, if you think about it. As I was describing the earlier uh, sun and moon and rain and God preparing seed and God preparing the ground before you put the seed in it, 
you were all kind of nodding at me and thinking about it like, yeah, that's true. God really does do all that. The more you think about how God has designed this life, the way he has designed this planet, the way he has designed us to breathe the oxygen that this planet produces, and that there are trees that make the oxygen. Did you do that? No, but it's incredible. We're just used to it because we just keep breathing. But it's incredible. We should be saying to God all the time, how awesome are your works. Because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will give feigned obedience to you. What he's saying is that even the foreign armies that are conquered by the strength of God and the power of God, even they get down on their face in front of God. It's not because they believe. It's because they're conquered. They're overwhelmed by God. Again, that warfare language to say that God will conquer his enemies and even unbelievers have to admit that when God shows his power, they are powerless before him. All the earth, says verse 4, all the earth will worship you and sing praises to you and will sing praises to your name, Selah. Think about that. So David declares that one day the conquering king is going to conquer everybody, sort of like every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Everybody is going to admit that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. David seems to be saying the same kind of thing, that all the earth will indeed worship you, and all the earth will indeed sing praises to you, and they will sing praises specifically to your name. I think sometimes we underplay or don't appreciate that God is jealous for his own name, his own authority. But that's why he would say things like, when you pray, say, your name is hallowed, separate from us, far above us, completely sinless. Your name is holy and righteous. Here David himself says, not only are people going to sing to you, but they're going to sing to your name. Because his name signifies everything that he is in his holiness, in his otherness, in his supremacy. They will sing praises to your name. Think about that. Come, see the works of God, who is awesome in his deeds toward the sons of men. Now he's going to list some. Now it's not just going to be natural things. He says, now let me tell you a little bit. Come and listen to me. I'm going to tell you about the awesome deeds of this God I'm talking about. He, verse 6, turned the sea into dry land. That's a good place to start. When he delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, he parted the Red Sea. And they walked across it on dry land. Okay, that's a pretty awesome deed. That's a pretty good work. Another good reason to worship and praise him. But beyond that, after their 40 years of traveling, they got to the edge of the River Jordan when it was at flood stage, and they were worried about how they were going to cross the river and get into the promised land when God dried up the River Jordan. So David mentions that. First, he turned the sea into dry land, and then they passed through the river on foot. There. 
Let us rejoice in him. <laughs> it's like, think about it for a moment. Think about what God has done. Whether you're talking about the natural occurrences that we take for granted, or whether you're thinking about the miraculous things in which he has delivered his people, God has left himself ample testimony to who he is and how he deals with people. Therefore, praise him. There, let us rejoice in him. Verse 7. He rules by his power, by his might, forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations and let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Selah. Okay, now he's speaking historically that there have been many nations on planet Earth that have risen up, that have gone to war with Israel, that have been conquered, that have been driven out, that have been driven away. And David is giving God credit for that, saying he rules by his might and his eye is on the nations, on the peoples. And he doesn't let the rebellious people exalt themselves to the point all the way back to uh, the Tower of Babel, when men got together and said, let us build a tower that reaches to heaven. And God went, nope. That's not a direct quote. (laughs) But he said, no. And then he scattered them, and he changed their languages because he would not let human beings exalt themselves to the point where they think they're equal with God. He controls the nations. By the way, that's a really good thing to remember right now, because we're alive right now. Most of us are alive right now. And so we're really concerned about what's happening in the world right now. And people have kind of lost the historic perspective of the world. If you look at the history of the world, lots of nations became very powerful, and then very corrupt, and then very gone, because God's in charge of nations. Nations come and go. Kings come and go. Rebellious people come and go. God remains. Same thing now. Same thing is going to occur right now. We see rebellious people and rebellious nations, and America is certainly one of them. And God will do to the rebellious nations of today the same thing he did to the rebellious nations in the past. The United States is not unique or separate from God's ultimate plan of glorifying his son. And so when we see the world going crazy, we don't worry about it because we know for a fact that God does not let rebellious nations exalt themselves. And then David wants you to stop and think about that. Bless our Lord, O people. Bless our God, O peoples. And sound his praise abroad amongst all the peoples. He is the one who keeps us in life. Did you wake up today? Did you know your own name? God. Here's a reason to praise him. Did you ever open your eyes and think, I need to praise God. I'm here. I still have life. He has promised me also life eternal, but I'm here. And so he is the one who deserves to be blessed, to be spoken well of amongst everybody. And we need to sound his praise among all the peoples. Sound his praise abroad 
because he's the one who keeps us in life and does not allow our feet to slip. For thou hast tried us. Now he's talking about the history of Israel. For thou hast tried us, O God. Thou hast refined us as silver that is refined. By the way, how do you refine silver? Takes fire. Takes trial. So David looks back at the trials of Israel and the things they've been through, including 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And he says, that was all God refining us, creating us to be the people that he wants us to be. Thou hast refined us as silver is refined. And you did bring us into the net. In other words, you're the one that caught us. You're the one that took us into years of slavery that we endured. You're the one that caught us in your net. And you did lay an oppressive burden upon our loins. And you did make men ride over our heads. And we went through fire and through water. And yet... You did bring us out into a place of abundance. So, far too often, people believe as they're going through difficulties and trials in life, they're much too prone to say, where is God in all this? Here's David looking at hundreds of years of Israelite history, giving God the credit for it because God is sovereign and saying, you're the one who caught us like we were caught in a net. You're the one who put an oppressive burden on us. You're the one that let other men ride roughshod over us. We went through the difficulties, through the fire, through the water. And despite all that, you didn't leave us. Even as we went through that trial as a people, you still knew what you were doing sovereignly because we had a promise reaching all the way back to Abraham when you told him that we were going to go into a land where we weren't known and we were going to serve there for 400 years and that we were going to come out with great abundance and then you were going to bring us to this land of milk and honey and David is able to look back on that history and say, God did deliver us into the land of milk and honey. He brought us to this land of abundance but he was also in charge of the previous 400 years which were difficult years, which were hard years for us But it was all part of the plan of God. Therefore, praise him. Praise him in the good times. Praise him in the bad times. Praise him through the difficulties. Because he knows what he's doing. He's ultimately going to deliver you into all the promises that he has already given you. You did make men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet thou didst bring us out into a place of abundance. Now he personalizes it and starts using I. Here's what I will do. I shall come into your house with burnt offerings. Okay, that's praise and worship. I shall pay thee my vows, the voluntary offerings that I have promised you during my times of trouble. I will worship you in paying those because of your faithfulness. The vows which my lips uttered And my mouth spoke when I was in distress. I shall offer to thee burnt offerings of fat beasts. With the smoke of rams, I shall make an offering of bulls and male goats. Selah. Come and hear all who fear God. And I will tell you what he has done 
for my soul. This is just great. He started at God's in charge of day and night. God's in charge of soil, seed, and rain. God's in charge of the difficulties and the history of the world and the rebellious nations. But then let me also tell you what he did for me. It's all part of the testimony and the reason to praise God. Not only because he's sovereignly in charge of everything and deserves praise, but every one of us can stop and think about what he did for you. He didn't leave you in your rebellion. And he did forgive you for your sin. He did send you someone to cover your sin. Come and hear all who fear God, and I will tell of what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled, raised up, praised with my tongue. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Actually, that's better translated, if I had regarded wickedness in my heart, then the Lord would not have heard. In other words, he's saying, it's necessary to walk upright. It's necessary to walk according to what you say you believe, according to your profession. And so he's saying, not only has God delivered me and cared for me, but at the same time, I walked in a way where I recognized that he was supreme in my life. If I had regarded wickedness in my heart, the Lord would not have heard, but certainly God has heard, and he has given heed to the voice of my prayer. So that's what he's done for David. He said, not only did I praise him, not only did I walk according to him, but I also know for a fact that I prayed to him about specific things, and he delivered me. And here I am writing this right now in order to say, he took care of me. I'm alive still. He took me through all of that. Certainly God has heard, and he has given heed to the voice of my prayer. If you can't think of any other reason to praise God, how about the fact that he listens to you? I mean, it's not as if he doesn't have better things to do. He's busy keeping the universe spinning. He's busy keeping every atom and molecule in its place. He's busy making sure that gravity works. He's busy making sure that the denizens of hell don't overwhelm the planet or that the rebellious nations don't exalt themselves too much. He's busy. And then he listens to you. And then he responds to your prayers. Well, if you can't think of any other reason to praise him, that's a pretty good one. He's given heed to the voice of my prayer, so blessed be God. That means eulogize God, speak well of God, say good things about God. Bless God with your mouth, shout to him, sing to him, extol his virtues, tell it far and wide. Blessed be God, who has not turned away from my prayer, nor has his loving kindness turned away from me. So David went all the way from he's in charge of all the big stuff, therefore praise him, down to 
You're alive. Praise him. Down to he delivers you through the troubles of this life. Praise him. Down to he has not removed his loving kindness from you. Praise him. He hears your prayer. Praise him. And the biggest reason I can think of, and I think David hinted at it, the biggest reason to praise him is because he's God. And you're, what's that word? Not. And you exist for the purpose of praising and worshiping God. He's the God who has covered your sin. Once you get a good whiff of your own depravity, it's really pretty easy to praise him. (laughs) And once you get a good sense of how far it is beyond you, yeah, you get a whiff of your depravity and he forgave you. He didn't take his loving kindness from you, though he would be well within his rights to do it. That's a lot of reason to praise him. But when you step back and you look at everything from the roaring of nations to the sun, moon, and stars, it's pretty remarkable. Right now, my son and my daughter are both sick. And they were felled by a a little virus that got in their throat. And they both got fevers and sore throats and colds and sleep all the time, which they kind of do anyway. And... I was around James on Sunday. Megan was already sick. James was apparently carrying it and about to get sick. I didn't get it. Why? God, it's his choice. He's in charge of it. Next time you get sick, it's because God decides you need to be sick. Next time you don't get sick, it's because God decides you don't get to get sick. I mean, it's just he's in charge of just absolutely everything. That's what it means to be sovereign. And the more you understand of that, the more you just need to hit your knees and stand up and shout and sing. Praise God. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.